The text for our sermon this evening is Leviticus 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally against any of the commandments in the Lord in anything which ought not to be done, and does any of them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord for his sin which he has sinned, a young bull without blemish, as a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and kill the bull before the Lord. Then the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and bring it to the tabernacle of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall pour the remaining blood of the bull at the base of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall take from it all the fat of the bull as the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks, the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove as it was taken from the bull of the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall burn them on the altar of the burnt offering. But the bull's hide and all its flesh with its le- head and legs, its entrails, and offal, the whole bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned." Let us pray. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Dear Lord, increase our love to thy word, which the angels desire to look into, and make our souls pliable and submissive to be turned and ruled by it, till we become in all things agreeable to it. Amen. We've talked about how all these sacrifices foreshadow the one sacrifice of Christ, Christ's death did not replace these sacrifices, it fulfilled them. The efficacy of all the Old Testament rituals didn't reside in themselves, it resided in the atoning work of Jesus. Many of our opponents slanderously label Reformed theology replacement theology. Nothing has been replaced, everything has been fulfilled. These sacrifices foreshadow Christ. But we've also seen how the high priest foreshadowed Christ too. So did David. So did the Ark of the Covenant. We could go on and on. The work of Christ is so glorious, so full, so complete, that it required the entire Old Testament, with all its characters, its history, its rituals, its laws, its regulations, its prophecies, all combined to merely foreshadow Christ. Altogether, they are but a dim shadow of the true substance. Christ didn't replace anything. He fulfilled everything. When I keep my word, I'm not replacing my promise. I'm fulfilling it. And this is how we are supposed to read the Old Testament. The person who reads the Old Testament as if it is just a mass of obscure histories with a handful of references to Jesus secretly sprinkled in, that person does not know Christ. Christ is the sum and substance of all of God's revelation in Scripture. If you can't see Him in the sacrifices, you can't see Him, period. 
Now, in the first three sacrifices, we've seen that eternal life was manifested to us in Christ, the great atonement. Chapter 1 of John's Gospel proclaims that Jesus is the Christ and that the Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've also seen that since we are redeemed by Christ, He now has a claim on us. We must therefore give ourselves and all that is ours to Him. 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells us, For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He has redeemed us, therefore we are His. Now in, in this chapter, God shows us what is to be done when His children come to the knowledge of sin of which they were not aware before. Tonight we're looking at the fourth of the sacrifices, the, the sin offering. Now like the burnt offering and the grain offering, this was mandatory. The important feature of this offering is its sprinkling of blood. Blood was sprinkled in different places depending on who the sinner was. There's a much wider variety of animals allowed for the sin offering than for the other sacrifices. And we must see this as a gracious act of, of mercy on God's part. Bulls, male or female goats, female lambs, turtle doves, and pigeons are mentioned. If the worshiper was extremely poor, he could offer one-tenth of an ephah of flour instead. That's about four pounds of flour. Male and female animals could be used in this offering, while only male offerings could be used in the burnt offering. Both types of offerings were essential in worship, but they clearly served distinct purposes. You see, sin is classified into two categories. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Doing what God forbids or failing to do what God commands. Now, sins in that second category are understandably harder to recognize. It's easy to understand that when God says, thou shalt not, and we're not to do that thing. It's harder to understand that the thou shalt not also implies a positive command, thou shalt. It takes no real effort on our part to understand, don't do that. It takes the combined effort of diligent study and a positive love for God's law to extract the positive principle, do this. And the difficulty does not lie in the fact that God is a hard guy who makes unreasonable demands. The difficulty lies in the fact that sin is deceptive, and as Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, our heart is deceptive too. So the sins under consideration this evening are sins of omission, what the Westminster Shorter Catechism calls lack of conformity to the law of God. We tend to think of sin only as something which we, we do full well knowing that it's wrong. But here we learn that sin is so deceptive that we can grievously sin without even knowing it. And of course, this should greatly magnify in our eyes the grace and mercy of God. It truly saddens a child of God to find that he grieves the Lord in so many hidden ways. Our hearts are as prone to sin as our lungs are to breathe. 
And if you've ever wondered why Israel had so many rules about food, about clothes, about other such things, it was for this reason. It was teaching us that we cannot so much as eat without sinning against God. In Psalm 19.12, David prays, Cleanse me from secret faults. In verse 2 of our text, we read the phrase, sin through ignorance. It is the same Hebrew root word in both cases. These are not sins of commission. Rather, they are acts committed by a person who didn't realize that the thing was sin at the time that he did it. He he committed the act deliberately. He just didn't perceive that the thing was sin at the time. And so you can sense, therefore, what David is praying. Sin is so deceptive that we may be committing the abominable thing which cast the angels out of heaven into an eternal hell, and for all that be completely unaware at the time. The sinfulness of the act may be hidden from us, either by insufficient knowledge of the law or by an insufficiently tender conscience. But here, in our great hour of need, appears the Son of Man. God, in His infinite compassion, instituted sacrifice for sins of ignorance. In this sacrifice, we feel the beating heart of our great high priest, who can have compassion on the ignorant, as Hebrews 5.2 says. Now, most translations render the Hebrew name of this sacrifice, hatat, as sin offering. And that's a natural translation because hatat commonly means sin, even within this very chapter. But we've already seen that there were other sacrifices which atoned for sin, notably the burnt offering, the peace offering, as well as the trespass offering that we'll look at next week from Leviticus 5. Sin offering is a technically correct rendering of the Hebrew, but we need a proper understanding of what sin is. Otherwise, the the name can obscure in our minds the precise function of the sacrifice. It most certainly has to do with sin, and it deals with its consequences, but it might help us to think of it as a purification offering. Sin disrupts the relationship between God and man, and between man and man. It threatens the covenant relationship by provoking God's anger. But sin has other effects as well. Sin not only angers God and robs Him of His due, but it also pollutes His sanctuary, and a holy God cannot dwell with impurity. The sin offering purified the place of worship so that God could be present among His people. God's holy sanctuary has been polluted, either by the worshiper or by the priest, or by both the worshiper and the priest, and they don't even know that they've done so. Sin is so deceptive that they have violated God's law and defiled His holy habitation without realizing it. How then can any atoning sacrifice be made when the sanctuary itself is impure? And this is why the very first case that the text gives us as an example of the function of the sacrifice is when a priest sins. You have a massive problem on your hands when the man who's supposed to perform sacrifice for you is himself in need of sacrifice. And how would you feel if you were married by someone who it turns out later was never legally vested with the authority to perform marriages? It's a million times worse 
If you found out that the sacrifice for your sin was administered by somebody as dirty, dog guilty as you. And so the first case that our text gives us, the really crucial one, is that of the priest. Sin had allured and deceived him, but now he sees his guilt. In our passage, God's voice directs his steps. He must bring a young, unblemished bull to the door of the tabernacle. Now, this ritual proves that God has provided the ransom. It harkens us back to Genesis 22.8, where Abraham preaches the gospel to Isaac in the words, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now, of course, there are three ways that we could read that clause. One, it could be that God himself will provide the sacrifice, or B, that God will provide the sacrifice for himself, or C, that God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And it's my contention that the right way to read it is all three combined. This is an empty ritual unless the victim is one of God's choice. And it is a mockery unless it witnesses, as Psalm 89.19 says, that help is laid upon one that is mighty. It is a mockery unless it witnesses that help is laid upon our mighty Redeemer, Jesus. We are not left to human schemes when dealing with sin. The sins are ours, but the remedy is His. And this gives us a greater appreciation for the breadth of Christ's atoning work, because as it turns out, our need is far bigger than we realize. Not only has God provided an atonement for our transgressions of His law, but He's also provided atonement for our failure to fully comply with it. Now, of course, sin can be classed in these two ways, but sin also has a double aspect. It has guilt and it has power. The beautiful hymn, Rock of Ages, teaches a profoundly accurate theological truth in the lines, Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Sin renders us guilty before God's judgment seat, and it's got nothing to do with how you feel. It doesn't matter whether or not you feel guilty. Feeling guilty says nothing about objective reality. We are all objectively guilty before the bar of God's justice, and this is true whether or not you feel guilty. Christ's sacrificial death cleanses us from the guilt of sin, but there's more. Because we sinned in Adam, our natures are completely depraved. This is the doctrine of original sin. We are prisoners, slaves of sin. We're led around by the nose from one sin to another. That's its power. Christ's sacrificial death cleanses us from the guilt of sin and frees us from its power. Now, this offering began just like the others. The worshiper brought the animal to the door of the tabernacle. Then he laid his hand on the animal's head, stated why he brought the sacrifice, and then he killed it. This solemn act is highly significant. We've talked about it a few times already. When the offending sinner places his hand on the head of the sacrifice, he's transferring his guilt to the innocent substitute. Without such a meaning, this act 
would virtually disappear into the realm of magic, a mysterious and mystical act which must be done, but nobody knows why. But God does not give ordinances in vain. The worshiper is acknowledging the transfer of all his guilt to the animal, and God was thereby teaching his weary and heavy-laden child to come to Christ to find rest. This came up in, in this past Sunday's sermon. Either Christ bears your sin or you do. If you bear it, it'll weigh you down to the deepest hell. Not because its guilt and power can't be broken, but because it hasn't been transferred to Christ. You and yourself will have clung to it and relied on your own merit to atone for yourself. Now, once the worshiper transferred his guilt to the innocent substitute, the animal was killed. Sin must have death. God's curse must fall. God solemnly warned Adam, in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Ezekiel warns, the, sin that soul, the, the, the soul that sins will die. Paul reiterates this in Romans 12, 6.23, when he writes, the wages of sin is death. God does not pardon sin by holding back His wrath. God pardons sin by pouring His wrath out fully. His hatred of sin must be shown. His majesty and honor must be maintained. His truth must be preserved. Pardons do indeed abound, but they all proceed along a blood-stained path, a via dolorosa. Because your sins slew Christ, they cannot slay you. His death is yours. That's the significance of laying your hand on the animal's head and killing it. His death is yours. Therefore, you live. God smiles upon you, not because you don't have any sins, but because every last one of them has died in Christ. Now, thus far, the, the offering looks much like the others, but the rest of this ritual is unique. In the burnt offerings and peace offerings, the blood of the animal was poured up against the altar. But in the sin offering, some of the blood was caught in a basin, and the rest was poured at the foot of the altar. The blood in the basin was used in different ways, depending on who the worshiper was. There were two forms of the sacrifice, excuse me, but three uses of the blood. If the offending sinner was the priest, the blood was sprinkled seven times on the veil of the sanctuary. This is the veil that hung in front of the mercy seat. It was the entrance to the Holy of Holies. The message that such an act preaches is clear and manifest. All who would enter heaven must plead shed blood. This is the veil which God ripped in half from top to bottom the moment Christ died, signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies has been opened to all believers by the death of Christ. Christ's work is so broad in scope that it wasn't just the sacrifices which foreshadowed Him, the priests did too. And in order for the priest to meaningfully foreshadow Christ, it had to be abundantly clear to the people that He was qualified. You know, question 16 of our catechism teaches us that one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. The priest was a sinner. The succession of priests proved this. When Aaron died, his son took his place. When his son died, his son took his place. 
on and on and on throughout the centuries because they were sinners too. In Hebrews 7, in verses 23 through 27, Paul writes, There were many priests, but they were prevented by death from continuing. Speaking of Christ, he says, Such a high priest was fitting for us, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now, while the people could bring an assortment of various animals or even flour for their sin offering, if the priest brought one, it had to be a bull. And this is a significant fact for a couple of reasons. A, when the priest went to God with sacrificial blood, he was prefiguring Christ. Hebrews 9.12 says that Christ entered the most holy place once for all with his own blood, presenting it to God. The priest was in a figure bearing the sins of the people. Exodus 28 describes Aaron as bearing the iniquity of the people when he came before God with the blood. And B, when the priest offered the, the annual sacrifice for the entire nation, that offering was a bull. The priest's personal sacrifice depicted that he was fit to bear the nation's sins because he had personal atonement of equal worth as that of the whole nation. As if to say that even if his sins were as numerous as the sins of the whole nation, he was atoned for. And therefore, he was fit to minister sacrifice for them. The very fact that the Old Testament priests were sinners declared the necessity of a sinless priest. It cried out for the surety of a better covenant. The priests also smeared some blood on the horns of the altar of incense. Now, the altar was a square table with sharp protrusions on its corners, which were referred to as the horns of the altar. And all of these rituals took place in the second part of the tabernacle called the holy place into which only the priests were allowed to enter. This altar was the place where the incense rose as a picture of prayer ascending to God. It demonstrated that prayer can only rise to God on the back of atonement. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Unless one's sins are atoned for, God will not hear his prayer. Proverbs 28.9 says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. It is only by virtue of Christ's sacrifice that we may offer prayers to God. Even the prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner, cannot, will not be heard except in virtue of Christ's atonement. The incense was a visual image of prayer. Its smoke ascending symbolized the priest's prayers ascending to God. The priest prayed for the sinner who presented the animal for sacrifice, and he prayed that God would forgive the sinner in view of the sacrifice just offered on his behalf. And the New Testament depicts this as one of Christ's offices for his people. He intercedes with God on behalf of His people in virtue of His offering. Paul tells us in Hebrews that the ascended Christ ever lives to make intercession for His people. 
Jesus demonstrated this intercession in John chapter 17. By virtue of his death, he pleaded God's grace upon his people. And therefore, for God not to forgive Christ's people would be for God to not accept Christ's sacrifice. Now, if anyone else, from ordinary Joe to the ruler of the people, was the offending sinner, the collected blood was smeared on the horns of the brazen altar that was out in the open court of the tabernacle complex. This is the one that was used for the burnt offering. There's a diagram of the temple in the bulletin I put there so that you can, you can see what we're talking about. But I want you to picture in your mind these altars reeking with blood. In these streams of blood, we see that God's claims are satisfied. <coughs> Excuse me, because there is more here than just the death of the animals. There are other rituals. The costliest parts of the animal were placed on the burning altar. The angry fire reduced them to ashes. A few days ago, someone asked me how these fires were kept burning since the fuel wasn't particularly combustible. It's not like they were burning dried out tumbleweed. These were the corpses of animals which were alive a few minutes ago. Now granted, the fat helped the fire burn, but the true source of the fire's power was that, the, that wood was constantly added to keep a roaring fire burning upon the altar. Day or night, 24-7, there was a raging fire blazing away. And this itself is an instructive lesson. Witness. The fire signified God's wrath against sin. And the fire which pictured this was a fire so wrathfully hot that it could burn whole bulls that were streaming with blood, sometimes one after another, after another, after another. Now even after the sacrifice was reduced to ash, the ash was taken outside the camp and disposed of in a per perpetually burning landfill. An apt picture of eternal hell. You see, even if you were to die for your sins, even after God's wrath reduced you to a handful of ashes, even those ashes would still be subject to His fiery indignation. You cannot suffer your way into redemption. Your suffering has no merit. None. Zero. You can burn in hell for eternity and your sin will still not be atoned for. Your suffering is not atonement. It is justice. Only the sufferings of an innocent victim have merit. Christ was truly in innocent. Therefore, only His sufferings have merit. Now, that's not all. The curse is linked to sin. A perfect sin offering must be hated as a thing accursed. Horror and disgrace must follow it to the bitter end. And what do we see in the sacrificial victim? Well, we see that even after it is burned, it is still vile and contemptible, carried outside the camp as something so disgusting that it must be removed from sight. And out there, outside the camp, the refuse is thrown into a burning blaze. Fire again does its damning work. This is a vivid picture of what our catechism calls Christ's hellish agonies. His soul was troubled unto death 
in Gethsemane. Anguish came upon him as he was arrested, tried, and led outside the gate. The holy city itself loathed him. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, the law says. And there, outside the city, Christ hangs conspicuously as a curse for sin. Divine vengeance falls upon him there. And in Hebrews 13, 13, Paul calls us to go to Christ outside the camp. Christ's death beautifully demonstrates the fact that God's wrath has been satisfied. No one ever said, it is finished over the burnt offering or sin offering. Because even after the offering was done, the ashes were removed to Tophet and burned forever. The very last words Christ uttered on the cross were, It is finished. All that God's infinite wrath demanded as payment for the sins of God's elect, Jesus paid. If you are one with Christ, the agonies of hell are behind you. If you are not one with Christ, they still remain. And alas, how shall you bear them? Let us pray. 